This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. This is Under the Weather from the BBC. With me, Claire Nazir and Simon King. In this podcast, we'll be joined by a range of experts as we answer some of weather's most interesting and challenging questions. In this episode, should we still worry about the hole in the ozone layer? The fact that we've controlled some of these chemicals that were destroying the ozone layer is believed to have really decreased the amount of skin cancers that are occurring every year by around 15%. So it really has quite a dramatic effect. That is astounding, isn't it, if you think about it? Yeah, millions per year. Under the weather from the BBC. Should we still be worried about the hole in the ozone layer? It's a big question. That is a big question. Um, And I think it probably stems from most of us doing, you know, education, GCSEs, A-levels, or whatever it might have been in the 80s and 90s. Well, that was for me, certainly, you know, doing my GCSEs. 10 years older. (laughs) Obviously, it was talked about the, the ozone hole. In the Antarctic, and and this this massive catastrophe that was happening to our planet, and we had to do something about it. But we should probably start really by just explaining what is ozone, and why it's so important. And of course, it's located in the stratosphere, yeah. that's above the troposphere, which is where we have all our weather, where all our clouds are. And it's it's a natural layer of ozone right around the Earth, and it protects us. On Earth, it keeps us alive. It protects us from those harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun, UVB specifically. So it's like the sun cream for the Earth, basically, isn't it, ozone? Yes, it shields us, it protects us. I really love the stratosphere. I think it's a fascinating place because it starts off just above the troposphere as a really cold place and it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. And the reason why... Well, because of ozone. Mm. So there's two types of ozone. We've got low-level ozone, which can cause... Issues with health, so that's classed almost as a greenhouse gas. It's a pollutant. It can cause problems on your skin, give you asthma. But the one we're talking about today is the ozone layer, which is between around 19 and 30 kilometres up in the atmosphere. So we've got this natural layer of ozone in the atmosphere, and it was during the 70s that there was concern, first of all, about man-made chemicals, CFCs, influencing this ozone layer and it was in Antarctica wasn't it that they first discovered a hole in the ozone layer where they were taking daily measurements and scientists initially thought there was a mistake with the instruments they thought there's no way that this level of ozone could be dropping so significantly but they looked at it further and uh, they concluded yet that yes there was a hole in the ozone layer and then it was up to us and governments, when they came together in the Montreal Protocol in the uh, in 1987, I believe it was. Was it 1987? Yeah. It yeah. Was. Um, and that was a, an international effort to control the production of CFC. So we were told about our refrigerators, aerosol cans, deodorants, you know, all that sort of stuff. It all had to go to help protect the ozone layer. And it was deemed as a huge success, environmental success, fronted in the UK by Friends of the Earth, Jonathan Porritt, Princess Diana was on board as well. And everyone went, no, we're not going to be using spray-on deodorants. We're going to be using other things so we can protect our environment and protect our atmosphere. But... The story continues, doesn't it? Because that was back in 1987, when I was 17. Fast forward to 2006, the largest ozone hole ever recorded across the Antarctic. Um, I've got a figure here, 29.6 million kilometres squared. That's absolutely massive. So 20 years after the protocol, where we've banned CFCs, 
Has anything changed? So joining us to to help answer this question of should we still be worried about the hole in the ozone layer is Lucy Carpenter. Now, Lucy is a professor of atmospheric chemistry at the University of York and is the UK principal investigator at the Cape Verde Observatory. And that measures trace gases and global atmospheric trends. Lucy, thank you for joining us on Under the Weather. Hello. now, a man should never ask a lady's age, but I'm interested to know because I've just been talking about I studied the ozone hole when I was doing my GCSE into my A-levels. So wow. that mm-hmm. was kind of when it came into my mind and it was in the 80s and 90s that we were talking about the ozone hole and this big government uh, international effort to try and to stop the ozone hole from growing. But were you involved in atmospheric chemistry at that time or were you <laughs> were you still learning about it like I was? I, I, I was probably somewhere between the two. So um, you can kind of stab a guess at this, but my <laughs> PhD started in the early 90s and actually wasn't anything to do with the ozone hole at that point. It was something I moved into actually after my PhD. So, um, so yeah, I'm definitely older than you, <laughs> but, but not by that much. <laughs> so why is the ozone layer so important to human life? We probably all know about the ozone layer being a protective layer, um, which which basically shields us from harmful UV, UV radiation. And it's and it's the actual properties of the molecule itself. So it absorbs right in that UV region, um, and along with oxygen. So O2, O2 of course is always there. It's really the primary reason that we that we're shielded from that UV radiation, which would otherwise um, be very intense by the time it re- reached the surface of the planet. So if I was standing with a nice layer of uh, ozone over me, mm-hmm. um, and it was a nice sunny day, say, in June, and then I was standing under a hole of the ozone layer in a nice sunny day in June, what would be the different effects it would have on my body? Very good question. So, I mean, typically, so if we talk about the whole ozone column, it's that really that matters, but most of that ozone is, is in the stratosphere. That's measured in something called Dobson units. So, um Typically, you know, total Dobson units. So around about when we, when we certainly when I was a when I was a, a small kid, 1970s or so, it was around about 300 Dobson units. Um, so in Antarctica, in when it gets to sort of ozone hole conditions around their their September around their austral spring, it can now be as low as 150 Dobson units. So it's kind of dropped by that dramatic effect in the last um, few decades. So we've established that the ozone layer is is. Is very very important for the uh, for mm-hmm. you know us living on Earth. Um, take us back then before we kind of noticed the hole was in the ozone layer because it's an it's a it increases and decreases naturally, doesn't it, throughout that's the right. year? Yeah, that's right. So these compounds, the CFC, so chlorofluorocarbons, started being produced in the 1970s or so, or even before then. And there was a basic science discovery that those the release of those compounds, you know, could lead to depletion of stratospheric ozone. So a lot of those kind of scientific discoveries were made in the in the laboratory before there were really observations that this was going on in in the actual stratosphere essentially you you these 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 compounds have chlorine that chlorine can be released when it gets into the stratosphere um, and then it enters all these chemical cycles and those cycles also need very very cold temperatures um, because it, they happen a lot of the chemistry happens on the surface of um, these so-called polar stratospheric clouds and they only form during extreme cold which, conditions which are beautiful clouds aren't they they are beautiful they're, they're the, sure mo- seen- the mother of pearl clouds we call them don't we because absolutely they've got that pearly color to them and, and we have seen them in the uk those those 
polar stratospheric clouds. So they're, they're beautiful clouds, That's but they're, right. they're in the stratosphere, aren't they? They are in the stratosphere. Um, you know, anyone can Google them. There's lots of images around. They really are beautiful, as you say. So I guess as a, as a weather person, you, <laughs> you have an appreciation of, of clouds, um, you know, and it's a kind of strange thing, actually, that they can be found in the stratosphere. And they're only there, of course, because it's so, so cold. There's very little water vapour around, but it's, 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 it's very cold indeed. So I guess, you know, there was this sense that... Um, that there was a chemistry that could be linked to ozone depletion. And, and in fact, you, you probably know, but it's actually the Nobel Prize um, in atmospheric chemistry was awarded for that discovery um, in 2005. But the actual ozone hole itself was only seen um, in 1985, so about 10, 12 years after that. Um, famously by, by British Antarctic survey scientists uh, working from a very, very old um, spectrophotometer um, operating on, in Antarctica there. So they, they observed that. And I guess then, then things really started going after that. And um, I guess it, you know, it really kind of captured the imagination when you can actually see or, or physically measure that there's this massive depletion of ozone. What I find really fascinating is that in most of the pollutants were probably produced in the northern hemisphere yes. and probably the mid-latitudes where people live. Mm. And, you know, weather knows no boundaries as those you know, huge atmospheric circulations. So all these pollutants, these um, CFCs, migrated to the upper levels of the atmosphere and then just drifted across. Why were they attracted to the poles or the South Pole in particular? Well, it's not necessarily, it's not that they're attracted to the poles. I mean, as you probably know, they, they just have massively long lifetimes. I mean, um, it, it's, a, it's a lesson, isn't it? Because um, these compounds have, some of them have lifetimes of hundreds of years. So kind of release compounds like that to the atmosphere at your peril because they could possibly be affecting um, the environment for, yeah, for many, many generations to come. So it, it takes years on average. It doesn't really matter. So if, if a chemical is released at the Earth's surface in the tropics, um, it will get to the stratosphere quite quickly. And that's because you've got very large convective systems there, which, you know, mm -hmm. I'm talking, <laughs> teaching my grandmother to suck eggs here. But yeah, so through clouds or whatever, you can have very fast um, transport of those chemicals straight to the stratosphere. If you release them um, in, in the mid-latitudes or, or even more towards the poles, it will take longer. It will still take, it will probably take years to get to the stratosphere. But if something's hanging around for hundreds of years, it doesn't really matter. It's going to get there um, eventually. So no matter where you release it, if it's got a lifetime that long, um, it can get into the stratosphere. And once it's in the stratosphere, things just hang around um, for a long time. And so it's not that they are um, attracted to the poles. It's just that that chemistry is much more active um, in Antarctica and Antarctica. And that's because you have these polar stratospheric clouds there where the surface chemistry is happening. So CFCs could be lingering uh, still across the tropics in the stratosphere. They could be everywhere across that sort of layer. But this is where the reactions really go on. This is that, where it takes place. That's right. It's and really, also, really massively cold. Where temperatures are, uh, how how low are the temperatures? I think it's about 185 Kelvin. So it's that's you know very cold indeed. And also, I mean the other thing is of course it's you have this um, Antarctic polar vortex. So in, in, in some times of the year, it breaks up in summer, but during winter and spring, and spring is when all this stuff happens, or spring in the southern hemisphere, um, it's kind of trapping those chemicals in the stratosphere um, because it's, uh, you know, it's just not allowing them to, to break up and mix with the rest of the atmosphere. And so also the ozone that's in there is trapped and it can't mix in higher ozone air from outside. So it's a combination of all of those things, really, that, that make it so potent in, um, in Antarctica especially. 
So the, the hole was discovered in about 85. Yeah. And then it only took two years until the Montreal Protocol for the big international effort to control the production of CFEs. I mean, that's... It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Two years for... It is incredible. For Um, governments to get together and say, this is a problem, let's do something about it. Absolutely. I mean... Bearing in mind that there was awareness of it before, and as I say, the kind of the basic science discovery was a was a decade or so before that. So there had been some attention, but I mean, you know, it feels really like was that a different era? Could we mm. imagine that happening now? And I think the thing was, as I say, I think the public really got behind it and recognised that there was a possible imminent risk. You know that. Um, this ozone that, that, that but yeah within two years it still staggers it's still staggering i think that 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 happened but i think they did they they saw there was an imminent risk the ozone hole was getting as soon as it was measured uh, it was getting worse year by year um the levels of chlorine containing chemicals were building up year on year and i think that really did put pressure on governments to do something and i, I guess of course that you know in the case of the cfcs uh, at that time there were there were replacement substitutes for those um and and so mm-hmm. there was a solution that could be brought out and used and so you know obviously people make parallels with with uh with climate change and and carbon emissions and and and, and it is and it's it's different in many many ways but i mean it's it's impressive that um yes that, and in fact i would say at that point there wasn't actually a massively a scientific consensus of all of the things that were going on and yet, you know, a treaty was 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 signed and and came into force. So that was fantastic. I think the thing about uh, ozone, the ozone layer, is that it had a detrimental effect on your kids, didn't it? It was about skin yes. skin cancer, about kids playing out in the sun yeah. and having to slap on sun cream because of something that we were doing to ourselves, i.e., spraying p- propellants. Yeah. So the, there was a real public concern and pressure from grassroots, really, rather than well, this could actually affect us in 20 or 30 years' time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's why it was it was such a success, although I don't think people realise how long it would take mm. for the healing process to occur. I don't know. I think you're right. It's something There was something quite emotive about the subject. I'm sure you're right, the fact that it was happening here and now, you know, <laughs> and putting a risk on everybody. And also maybe slightly, you know... Um, you know, chemical companies are producing these things, and I guess that's a that's a story that you can you can sell. The public, if you like, um, weren't directly to blame. They didn't they didn't they didn't know what they were doing. So you know, there were substitutes, and that and that and that could happen. But but yes, it does take a long time. I mean, it's only now, really, only just now that that we're starting to see signs that the ozone hole is recovering. So Lucy, just tell us now then. So. The Montreal Protocol was deemed as being a success and mm-hmm. we reduced our CFC production. Uh, so fast forward then. So what's happened to the ozone hole since since the Montreal Protocol? So the phase out was introduced in 1989 following the pro- signing of that protocol. And then levels of chlorine and bromine kept rising in the stratosphere after that, as we've talked about already, because they have such long lifetimes. You know, just like turning. If you, if you switch something off like that, it's going to take a long time to come down still just because it's hanging around for so long. So they probably peaked um, in the mid-1990s or so, those levels of chlorine and bromine. And so we're past that peak now in terms of the chemicals that are destroying ozone, and probably they've decreased by about 15% from their peak, and they're still dropping progressively year on year. But it takes a while to um, to see the effect on ozone. And also, as you mentioned earlier, there's quite large natural variability in ozone, not least from the meteorology 
um, that's going on. And especially, you know, how cold, how cold the winters are, how cold the spring is and, and therefore the formation of these clouds. So it's harder to pick out, but it, we are now starting to see those first signs of recovery. And um, it's believed to have actually avoided around 2 million cases of skin cancer per year. The fact that we we are not we you know that we've controlled some of these chemicals that were destroying the ozone layer is believed to you know to have really decreased the amount of skin cancers that are occurring every year by something like, I think by around 15 percent. So it really has quite a dramatic effect. That is astounding, yeah. isn't it? If you think about it. The, yeah, the... millions per year. We understand the chemistry now. Well, you do, uh, which is which is enough for us, really. I won't pretend to know all of it, but yes, yeah. thank you. Um, of what destroys the ozone layer? Mm-hmm. Can you see anything in the future where we have to be very careful about what we throw into the atmosphere? Any potential damaging pollutants which could have a detrimental effect on the ozone layer in the future? Well, so I mean, I've just talked about how um, we're expecting the ozone layer to recover. Um, so that's all a good news story. But I mean, it's quite strange on this because the ozone layer and what level it recovers to in future is going to be depending more on greenhouse gas emissions than it is now on these ozone depleting substances. So, you know, we've kept the ozone depleting substances, the chlorine compounds under control. The thing that's happening now is bizarrely that gases like CO2 in particular um, will actually affect the the level of the ozone layer more than those chlorine-containing chemicals. And so what we believe is that those continued emissions will actually, it could mean that the ozone will actually increase above historical levels in the latter half of the century. So we could see ozone being higher than it was in 1970 or so, 1980, towards the end of the century. And that has, I suppose, quite uncertain consequences. So hang on, hang on. So the (laughs) CO2 is increasing, as we know. Mm -hmm. And that's going to have a knock-on effect on ozone layer across the stratosphere, raising the layer to a higher point in the stratosphere. Not, well, not raising the layer, but just raising the concentration. The so concentration. We'll have, more, we'll have more ozone. We'll have more ozone in you know in the stratosphere. So mm-hmm. that reduces the amount of UV coming and hitting the the Earth. Exactly. So it basically reduces um, ozone depletion. So this is a positive story then. Is of, it positive? Well, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it. <laughs> I wouldn't say it is. I mean. Um, what, ideally, what you want is you want to return things back to their natural level. I think we probably all agree on that, because if it's been a natural level for the last thousands of years, it's probably one that we are, you know, evolved to survive in. If you're then changing it back to a level, you don't want it to change. You don't want it to. You don't. You don't want never to get back to that level. So of course, it's great that it's that it's going to recover. You could argue you don't want it to um, increase above its natural level, because at that point you might there have re- reduced levels of UV radiation reaching the surface. And, you know, that could, for example, have implications for vitamin D um, uptake and for, you know, on on human health that way. So uh, it's a strange one. I mean, the science behind it is that um, increasing CO2 leads to cooling of the stratosphere. This is the thing. It it sounds very confusing. It sounds like it could be not such a bad thing considering our global temperatures are going up year on year. Well, I, I would argue that we don't want the ozone column above our head to be higher than than it was naturally and has been for you know uh, thousands and millions of years so i think the ideal policy is that if you reduce co2 emission co2 emissions you know to a level it which say you know the paris agreement for example would um, project going forward then what you'll probably do is you will return ozone to near historical levels at all latitudes by the latter half of the century 
If, however, CO2 keeps going up and methane and some other gases as well, then we're very likely to end up in a situation where ozone, the ozone column, stratospheric ozone, is higher than it was. And I don't think that is ideal. And I think we would, I mean, particularly not in, you know, mid-latitudes or so, where there are a lot of populations that already are vitamin D deficient. I think that's been in the news quite a lot recently as well. Um, so, no, we don't want it to be lower, but n- neither do we want it to be higher. And it's some strange twist of the of the story, I suppose, that actually future levels of greenhouse gases now have a sort of potentially greater impact on the ozone layer than um, these chlorine-containing chemicals because they've come down and they're now controlled. Who's our best worst enemy? Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> a really, it's a really strange one and it's a quite tricky one to, to get across because if you'd said to people in the 1990s, um, increasing CO2 emissions will lead to an increase in stratospheric ozone. At that point, you might say, well, great, because we've got a big ozone hole. We want to fix it. Um, and that may be a, you know, could be... An, now we're at the point where we're looking at ozone recovery, yeah. which has already happened probably here and will be happening in the next 50 years. You know, you don't want to be... Um, you know, p- putting more ozone on top of those levels. So, um, yeah, that's that's a worry going forward. So if we continue with this business as usual, like the IPCC and, and mm. this phrase that everyone uses when we're talking about climate change, if we go business as usual, um, when will the ozone layer be back to the 1980 kind of levels, kind of yeah. those levels before we started damaging it with CFCs. Yeah. So business as usual scenario, um, which is, you know, the, av- the, 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 the which is the climate scenario people use. We're, we're talking about 2050 globally. Um, like I say, in the Northern Hemisphere, um, it could be that we've already reached that point or sort of certainly will do in the next 10 years. But the Antarctic ozone hole itself would be a bit later. So it could be between 2060 and 2080. So the Australians will still, could well be, Australian friends could still be affected for another 50 years or so. And you know that at this point, actually, in time, the biggest single um, ozone depleting gas is, uh, is a molecule called N2O, um, and uh, it's actually laughing gas. But that's not why it's produced in large quantities. It's it's a it's a function of um, adding nitrogen fertilizer to, to soil, and that's been increasing quite 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 a lot. So it depends quite a lot on what N2O does in the future, and uh, that's quite a hard one to control because it's coming from sort of, you know, biological as well as man-made type, um, uh, human-made type emissions. We've talked about the ozone layer and how it affects people with skin cancer and and things like that, but how does the ozone hole modify the weather or or, or the layer? How does the ozone layer modify our weather? Yeah, well, that's another thing that's really come out that... um, in the last sort of decade or so that perhaps we weren't aware of certainly you know in the 1980s or 90s and there is a there is a connection um the main one is again in the southern hemisphere which is what where you'd expect because you know there's the antarctic hole is where things are are at the most extreme and it turns out that the ozone depletion itself has quite a strong effect on the southern ocean and uh, its temperature um the circulation and the salinity and that's again because of this um the destruction of ozone causing a cooling of the polar lower stratosphere and that in turn causes changes in the whole tropospheric circulation or the lower atmospheric circulation in the southern hemisphere so that has associated climate and ocean impacts so essentially what we think is that if you have a, a fixed sort of ozone hole perturbation then you get a fast cooling of the southern ocean followed by a slow long-term warming and even it, through that connection, it's believed to have actually acted to reduce Antarctic sea ice. Um, 
so that's one major effect. The, the, um, the, the actual impacts are quite uncertain because it's very hard uh, for models to get uh, Antarctic sea ice right, but there's believed to be an effect there. And also, because there could be oz- these ozone-induced changes in surface winds, um, that has a potential to affect um, the amount of carbon going into the sur- Southern Ocean as well. So it really does have knock-on effects. Now, now those effects will have been greatest um, up to around the year 2000, um, you know, when the ozone hole was at its worst and, and now will be lessening. So probably other effects are starting to dominate now. But it, but it, they did have these knock-on climate and um, ocean impacts as well. So is that the reason why, um, particularly, um, it's obviously been well broadcast and written about the western side of Antarctica saw a, has seen a lot of ice melt. We can put some of that down to the whole of the ozone layer. I'm not a sea ice expert. And as I say, these changes were would have been um, most dramatic during the period where the ozone hole was, was was at its worst in the you know in the late 1990s or so. There are many other changes as well, including sea surface temperature, and they're pro- and now you know almost there certainly to dominate now. But it is one of the things that impacts Antarctic sea ice, or certainly has been one of the things that have impacted Antarctic sea ice. So um, you know certainly I would not say now that it's one of the major reasons that that cause variability. But it has been uh, has had a role to play um, in the last couple of decades. And I presume things like I don't know the plankton is obviously very affected by UVB, isn't it? And so those right. the ecosystems in the ocean have had a huge knock-on effect with uh, this sort of the, the food chain in itself being damaged because of the depletion of ozone in again that region of the world. Well, I believe so. Again, you know that's not my area of expertise, but yes, surely as the as as it's, I've certainly seen studies that that have made those links between increased UV radiation and, and damage. I mean, it's um it's even damaged whales. So so apparently whales can get sunburnt, and um, I think they did a study of whales and. Off the coast of California, and, and seen that the um, their, that sunburn was getting worse, looking at DNA damage and all the rest of it. So they've linked it to to certainly to lots of lots of animals that live in the sea. This has been absolutely fascinating, Lucy. You've you've, you've brought a lot of interesting insights into to the ozone layer and to the ozone hole. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. But before we go, we just want to answer that question: Should we still be worried about the hole in the yeah. ozone layer? Well, I mean, as I said earlier, perhaps we shouldn't be worried so much about the hole now, but whether the hole um, actually not only closes, but whether the ozone column continues to rise. So the ozone ends up being at higher levels than they they are historically. But I would like to just add one more thing into the mix as well, is that historically the Montreal Protocol was all about the compounds which destroy ozone. So the CFCs, the HCFCs. But those those gases and their replacements are also climate gases. They're greenhouse gases in themselves. And there's a recognition. So one of the replacements are these so-called HFCs or that, that don't deplete ozone in themselves. So they weren't traditionally part of the Montreal Protocol. Um, but we were seeing that there were some predictions that were seeing if they continued to be released um, as they were being doing, produced as they were being doing, they in themselves could contribute to um, surface temperature rising or warming of about half a degree centigrade by the end of the century. So that's a really significant um, compared to other gases, even compared to sort of changes in CO2. So interestingly, the Montreal Protocol now adds these HFCs to the mix of gases. It's, it's an amendment called the Kigali Amendment. 
Um, and I think that's a real a real success that has actually seen that. It, so it's gone from being a really an ozone protection treaty to one that now recognises that the effects of that were to bring in gases that didn't destroy ozone but had an effect on climate. So I think that's something to watch out for, is that the it now brings HFCs, which are you, probably we some of us have in our cars, they're used as air conditioners, into, um, into under control as well. And we need to sort of keep an eye on what happens with HFCs in the future. So that's, that's really fascinating, again, in itself, isn't it, that we talked that there was that two-year difference between the um, observation of the whole to then the mm-hmm. Montreal Protocol, then to the kind of the coming together of the, the governments. And, it, and it's just crazy that now, these days, for greenhouse gases, CO2, yeah. you have 97% of climate scientists saying that CO2 in the atmosphere is causing mm-hmm. uh, global warming, but, but yet we're doing very little about it or appear yeah. to be doing little mm-hmm. about it. Uh, but then that's interesting that the introduction of the HFCs into the Montreal Protocol, that is some recognition, therefore, that, OK, these chemicals are causing global warming. That's right. And so, so there I, is a small in, small recognition there of, of governments that say absolutely. that we can do something about it. Yeah, I think it adds to the success of the whole of the whole treaty. You know, it's evolved. It's seen, in a way, you could imagine that that's almost like an unintended consequence of the Montreal Protocol because in itself it brought about these replacements that didn't deplete ozone. But, you know, when the evidence became that these HFCs could be dangerous if they were continued to be produced, I mean, especially the sort of as climate change increases there's a need for more and more air conditioning and things like that so you know i think it's a success that 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 people have recognized that and governments have been prepared to act and bring that into their amendment and say yeah you know hang on we need to we need to control these gases so i would say now the major you know a lot of the major success of the montreal protocol and its amendments is now just as much about climate change as it is about ozone depletion Thank you very much, Lucy, for joining us. It's been a real insight, actually. And we've learned a lot, haven't we, Simon? We have indeed, yeah. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Under the Weather was presented by me, Simon King, and Claire Nazir, and was produced by Ronan Breen and Stuart Morgan. Next time on Under the Weather. The total water uh, mass contained in Earth's big ice sheets, if it was all put back into the ocean, would raise sea level 80 metres And so anyone who lives at sea level, and and most of the large cities of the world are at sea level, would not recognize their home. Subscribe to Under the Weather now for a new episode every Monday.